1: This is a national lament, and while we can't be certain, many scholars believe that it may well have been written after the return from the Babylonian exile. Some even suggest that it was written by Ezra. All we can say for sure is that it was sung by the sons of Korah. Structurally, this psalm is fairly straightforward. There are four sections to the psalm. In the first section, there is remembrance of God's past acts of kindness and mercy In the second section, there is a lament and a prayer for restoration and renewal. In the third section, there's an anticipation of future deliverance. And then in the final section, there is an oracle of hope. In terms of how and when to use this psalm, I think it would be fair to say that this psalm would serve as a helpful prayer whenever the people of God find themselves in times of trial, test, or punishment. This is a prayer for God to turn toward us in mercy and to turn us toward him in repentance and renewed allegiance. It is a prayer expressing a belief that as God was kind to us in the past, so shall he be kind to us again in the future. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to our land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now, if we're correct in supposing that this psalm was written sometime after the return from Babylonian exile, then that may well be the former mercy that is being here recalled. The psalmist knows that God would have been well within the right to bury the people and forget them in Babylon. They broke the covenant. They gave themselves to idols. They committed spiritual adultery. And had God divorced them and sent them away and chosen some other, more faithful people to be his people, then no one would have accused him of misconduct. And yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquity. He covered their sin. He withdrew his wrath and he brought them home. However, as the reader of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai will recall, the gratitude and faithfulness of the people was short-lived. They made the same old mistakes. They neglected the worship. They intermarried with the pagans. They dealt cruelly with the poor. And once again, They found themselves failing and fading in the land. And it was only the memory of God's incredible grace to them in the past that gave them the courage to go to the Lord again in prayer. Derek Kidner says here, Israel is not pining for past glories, which are often an optical illusion, but remembering past mercies. This is realistic. It is also stimulating. It leads to prayers rather than dreams, closed quote. See, what they want is to be right with God again. They know they're not. They can read it in their own circumstances, and they can feel it in their own hearts. So they pray. Verse 4, restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. This second section of the psalm is the classic lament section. God, you're angry with us. God, we feel your wrath. Lord, will you be angry forever? Will you not turn and help us once again? That is the language of lament. Willem van Gemmeren says here, The lamenting community prays that the Lord may restore them by extending the benefits of his love to all of life. They pray for renewed expressions of his unfailing love. The expressions of unfailing covenant love that they were looking for were very concrete expressions. They were looking for better crop yields, favor with the government, victory over local adversaries. Again, if we're right in understanding this as a post-exilic psalm, then we can read about all the hardships and difficulties these people were having in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, for example, we read, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and... Bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors, quote. So that's the situation. The people know that they've lost the favor of the Lord. They can see it in their wallets. They can see it in their barns. They can feel it in their bones and they know why they neglected the worship to build up their own wealth, not to mention all the other stupid things they did. They know that they have blown it. They know that God is justly angry with them, but they remember that he had been merciful to them in the past. And so they dare to ask him to be merciful again. That's what's going on here. And then in verse 8, the voice of the psalmist breaks in. He says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So here the psalmist, having laid the groundwork by reciting past mercies and by lamenting present hardships and by asking for future mercies, here, he says now, we must wait to hear what the Lord will say. We, we cannot presume on God's mercy. We mustn't ever think that there's a, a formula by which we may get from God what we desire. We, we must never think that we just simply recite the past mercies, and then step two, we bemoan the present difficulties, and then step three, we ask nicely for further grace and mercy, and, and then, of course, of course we would say today remember to end your prayers in Jesus name and bingo bango bobs your uncle out from the lord will flow rivers of kindness and favor that sort of approach is blasphemous god never owes us mercy if he owed us mercy it wouldn't be called mercy the psalmist knows that very well so he says that the the best we can do here folks is wait to see what God will do. And and in the meantime, refrain from folly, right? Let's, Let's not be heaping up new sins while we wait for mercy with respect to past sins. Wait and refrain from folly. That is marvelous advice and we who pray would be wise to heed it. In verses 9 to 13, the final section of the psalm, we have the oracle of hope. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. So in these verses, the psalmist says that God inclines to mercy. Mercy and grace are his default posture. He judges when he must. He, he chastens and he disciplines us because our behavior demands it. But we have every reason to hope that if we cease from folly and if we cast ourselves on his mercy, he will be gracious. That is his nature. Surely salvation is near to those who fear him. God's desire is to fill the land with his glory reflected and lived out through us. That's the plan. That's always been the plan. Sin gets in the way. Our wickedness and folly delays the plan, pauses the plan, complicates the plan, but it does not finally defeat the plan. In the end, God will have what he wants. A world filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The prophet's confidence comes from his understanding of the general trajectory of God's redemptive purpose on the earth. God's intent is to restore. God's intent is to heal and prosper the land. God's intent is for all things opposed to be reconciled and for righteousness and goodness to prevail. So, yes, the Lord will give what is good. Yes, The Lord will make the land yield its increase once again. Righteousness will advance. A path forward will emerge. And the purposes of God will surely triumph. Of course, we must turn back from folly. We are all that currently delays the progress and increase of God's kingdom. So we all need to become what we were created, saved, and intended to be. And the psalmist prays for that as well. J. Alec Matier says here, When we are what we ought to be, he will come and dwell among us in manifest glory. Fundamentally, however, this too is Calvary-based, where every divine attribute and requirement was satisfied and a kiss of love resounded through the divine heart. As we look upon the cross of Christ, as we look upon the Mount of Calvary, we ought to have far greater assurance, even than this psalmist, that the Lord will do what needs to be done for his people to be restored, for his world to be renewed, and for his name to be renowned in all the earth."
0: Once again that's into theword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of into the Word.